0: Welcome, everybody. Welcome. Um, good evening. We're so excited about tonight. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, because, because Rabbi David Kasher has published a book, and it's a really good book. Um, so, the, the, based on the best book ever. Right. Um, <laughs> it is
1: not the best book
0: ever. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk a little bit more about that. I, I just wanted to tell you the first time that, uh, that I cast eyes on this great rabbi to my right. Um, we were at Reboot in Park City, Utah, and Rabbi Kasher was there, and I've been on the faculty for like 20 years or something, and I think it was the first time that you had come up on the faculty, and I heard him talking to a gaggle of you know young, hipster, creative brilliant, kind of disaffected Jews. And everybody was in, like, rapt attention. And I'm like, who is this guy? Like, hilarious, runs in the family, brilliant, also runs in the family, um, and and actually knows how to talk to humans. And I just was so struck by the combination of those things. And then we got to know each other a little bit that weekend, and when it happened um, a few years later that we were looking for a rabbi. I do remember that that we had this uh, conversation. Like Melissa and I, do you think that Rabbi David Kasher would actually come, move to Los Angeles, and come to Ekar? Wouldn't that be incredible? And um, it is. It's been such a wonderful blessing to have you in our midst. We're so honored by your presence, and I'm so excited about this book because it means that. Everybody in the world can actually experience what we get to experience all the time from you. Which um, I've said this a number of times in services already, but when you read the book, it reads the way that he speaks. It's sa- you, the way that when when you have a great teacher, you can hear their voice echoing in your head. You can hear Rabbi Kasher teaching you and speaking just to you when you read the book and there's something so profound and wonderful um, about about being able to share that gift um, with an even broader circle of people um, in the world now so we are gathered tonight to celebrate to do a little bit of learning um, we're thrilled that folks are here in the room we know we have lots of people who are with us online um, so thank you and we're going to start by inviting rabbi kasher to um, to do a little a little reading from the book, and then we'll engage in conversation, and then we'll have Q and A, and then some l'chaim. So that's the run of show for tonight. Welcome everybody. Thank you for being here.
2: All right. All right.
1: Um, thanks everybody. Um, it, it, it's really it really is meaningful um, to be able to celebrate this in here at Ekar, at my home community. Um, I'm grateful to Rabbi Browse, um, who's been such, a, such a, a magnificent mentor to me um, these last um, four years and who wrote a beautiful blurb on the back of the book that I'm very proud to have. I'm grateful to my whole clergy team, um, just good people who, um, who, to a person, love Torah. They love, love Torah. You know, like Rabbi Rouse is like famous for being a, a warrior for justice, but she's a dork for Torah, you know, just like, <laughs> just like me. Um, and, um, and I'm just, I'm, great for, I'm grateful to my, to my fellow nerds. I'm grateful to Hannah Jensen, who didn't edit on the books, super grateful to you. Um, and I'm grateful to my whole team, to, to Melissa and Elad and Monica and, and Sweet, the development team that supports the work that I do and and supported you know, um, this, this book and bought these copies tonight. Very grateful to you. And to the communications team, where's Ben? Ben and Jess and Vera, Ben back there, who always believes in me, always believes in, in, in what I'm doing and pushes me and challenges me and, and then cheers me on. And really grateful to you. And, um, and grateful to Susan, who put this, this evening on. I, I have lots of, I'm, I'm sure, am I leaving someone out stupidly? I'm grateful to all, to all of all of my team at icar um, but most of all i'm grateful to you i'm just i'm grateful to this community um, this this is it's been such a it is such a privilege to teach in this community it's been such a great journey it, learning a learning journey that 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 i that that had started four years ago and that really took off actually during covid when we just started doing classes online all the time all the time and it just like it, i, I it 's been the, the center of my life learning with you all and um, and you're so the, the thing that I love people ask me what, what's what's what do you like most about ecar people ask me that sometimes what do you like about ecar and I always say that our just our our people are so enthusiastic and passionate and energized and you just don't you just don't find that everywhere you know you you built something special here and people are People know it, and they show up, and they're, they're excited to show up. And, and, and I feel that in my classes. I, you know, today I taught a class on Aruv, um, on the Aruv. And everybody got into it, and everybody has a story, and, 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 and pe- people said brilliant stuff. It's just like the Aruv was, somebody said, mapping the ontology of our community. I mean, it's just like, just incredible, incredible fellow learners in this community, and I'm, and I'm grateful to you. So, and I'm grateful to my family for being here. So, so it's, it's good to see my family. Yeah. Um, so, um, and and I'm grateful to the interpreter for making that for making part of that possible. Um, so, uh, just a word about this book. Um, it uh, it came out of uh, five years of of, of weekly writing uh, a blog. And at first it was just, just a passion project. It's just like an outlet because I started to, I, I was a teacher and I teach Torah and I'll teach whatever you want me to. And, um, but I started to realize that all, all the Torah I, I taught and all, all the Torah that I loved, I always loved this stuff the most, this genre, which is called uh, Parshanut, the Torah Torah commentary, the, the tradition of commentators on this Torah that starts with the Midrash and, and continue on into the, to the present age, and, and I just, I loved it, and I, I was a, a dork for it, and I was, you know, oh, I, I needed some kind of expression, so I started, you know, blogs were a bigger thing back then, so, um, so I started just posting on Tumblr, and people started to read, and, um, and so I kept writing, and I started taking it more seriously, and, and eventually, it was like best case scenario for a blog, which is that my work... You know, like there was enough of a readership that my work was like, well, you know what? We'll put our name on that, and we'll pay for a day of your work. That's a very generous offer. One day of your week, you can devote to this to this blog. Um, but the truth is, like at its height, I was devoting two or three days and many nights. I was just like, all of my thoughts. You know, I would just spend the week in the in the library of of Parshanut, in the library of of these of these, just sort of brilliant and fascinating people who have been looking at these words that we still look at for centuries and centuries and millennia and I just I would I would just I would ask a question you know start with a question like flip through the weekly Parsha and I find something that would catch my interest and then I would just like go looking for answers just go digging around and um, and I put them together and then I would start to try and and, and, and record what I'd found, and, and and I would sometimes write late into the night, and it was just, it was like, it was such a wonderful, it was a glorious experience, it really was, it was just like the best writing, the best learning experience that I had, and I had it in my own living room, and it was just, uh, it was wonderful, but, um, but you know, uh, I, I, I started, it was taxing also, and five years later, I was starting to feel like, I can't, I can't keep this up every single week. It's like relentless, this tradition, you know? Just keeps coming at you. It's next week is Shabbos, too. And um, and so I started to feel like, okay, I, I, I can't do this anymore. And then, and, then, and then I got this incredible job offer, and I knew there was no way I'd be able to keep up like a, a weekly blog. Um, but anyway, this is, so I had this idea, maybe I'd turn it into a book, and at first it didn't seem possible, and then it became possible, and then... It was like anxiety and and headache, kind of getting it together and editing it, editing it again and again. And it, uh, by the end, I sort of wondered, was this? Do I even need to do this? Who cares? Was this all worth it? And then the book comes out, and you know, I'm like a book guy. Like I've been with books my whole life, and it's nice to have a book with your name on. It's like, oh yeah, books. <laughs> like I'm on a book, you know. <laughs> so it's just a, that's a cool thing. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, and it just feels like full circle to be to be doing it um, here at Ecar. So anyway. Um, This book is um, about Torah commentary, uh, Parshanut. (laughs) The book is, is, I think of it as called Parshanut, but of course everybody calls it Parshanut, and that's because I got Parshanut.com, and everybody's like, oh, Parshanut, that's cute. And I was like, oh yeah, that is cute, I'll go for it. Um, So I got a a walnut logo, and and I capitalized the N, and I went for it. Um, But it it the point of this book is to expose a wider audience, in a way that people have said that that it's accessible um, to this tradition of Torah commentary, this genre. You know, like Talmud has a kind of a a good reputation um, and Torah has a good reputation, but this tradition of commentary, um, I think, um, could be um, studied more, should be studied more. And so part of it is just to expose a wider audience to Parshanut, much in the spirit of Nechama who did that so um, magnificently uh, 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 in the 20th century and affected so many of us, and I really just this was just sort of like dutifully following in her in her footsteps this this project. Um, so it's about Parshanut, but it's also, of course, just about my love of Torah, and um, and just 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 a kind of um, a kind of repeating um, rumination on on this book and what is it about this book that has inspired thousands of years of attention and scrutiny and interest what is it about this book and what is it about this revelation that continues to unfold in the mouths and minds of of people um, all over the world from generation to generation that's that to me is like that's the great wonder at the center of all of our all of our study and this book is just um, a drop in that in that ocean but um but that's what I want to do. Then is, is with this book is just to kind of bring you into this this unfolding revelation, to, so that so that so that you can experience it and and become a part of it, and then and then contribute to it, which is the goal of all of our learning to like bring us all into the conversation, the discourse that is Torah. So um, and we do that every time we get together to learn, and um, and so so we're doing that tonight. So anyway, so I'm gonna I'm uh, I'm gonna do I'm gonna read. Uh, there are 54 essays in this, one for every parsha. There's 54 parshas, and sometimes you have to squish them together to get right. There's only 52 weeks in a year, um, but the Jewish year is a little different. Sometimes we we read them all, sometimes we, we put two together. Um, so I'm going to read this week's. Um, I never get to, this is just kind of fun because I, I, I've been I've been you know I I have some um, appointments to like travel around and 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 share this book with people, but. Mostly, I'm not going to do book readings because I sort of feel like, well, if you haven't seen me before, I, I don't, I also, you just have to teach it, right? I don't, I don't, I'm not used to reading things, but it is kind of fun to do an actual book reading, so I'm just going to do a small <laughs> one here, like where I, in my community where I can indulge. Um, and also, uh, this is this this week is Parsha Toldot, and Parsha Toldot um, is my, is my favorite Parsha. It just happens to be my favorite Parsha. Um, and so it's nice to be able to, to celebrate Parsha Tol Dote. Um, uh, and also, uh, it, it, uh, it gives me a chance to, to, to mention someone else, uh, who blurbed my book, Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg is on the back of the book. And she's like, a, you know, she, you know, so I heard some, you know, she's like a real rock star. One of the, one of the, the, living examples of, of, of Torah commentary um, just alive and well. I mean, she, what, what she is writing will be part of the canon. So I got Browse and Zornberg on my book. It's like it's gonna, it's gonna be a New York Times bestseller. I'm very, very proud of that. Um, yeah, Amazon bestseller. Amazon right, bestseller, right. That at least it was for a week or two. Um, Anyway, so, um, so, so I'll read this. It's just a short essay uh, on Toldot. Um, I always begin with a question because that's the discourse. Parshanut always begins with a question, right? That when we read Rashi is probably the most famous name in the genre. And when we, when we read Rashi, we often ask, wait, what is, what's Rashi's question? Or what's bothering Rashi here? Because the discourse presumes, wait, I should say this before I begin. This discourse, Parshanut, operates on two assumptions which uh, seem to contradict one another. And one is that this text is divine and perfect. And every word and jot and tittle has, uh, has infinite layers of meaning embedded in it. But on the other hand, it, it rests on the assumption that this text has to be attacked and that every moment of strangeness or oddity or discomfort or offense or surprise, we have to ask questions. We have to, we have to, to take this book apart, to, take this, to, to confront this book with the assumption that we will find answers. And so, that's, so that's the discourse. And so I always began with a question. And then I would just go chasing answers down and invite you to follow me and see kind of where it, it leads. And, you know, in t- just, just a word on where it leads I, I feel like, you know, when it was good, when I was writing and it felt good, I didn't know where it was going, you know? And, and that's because this is, this, is, this is like meant to convey an experience of learning Torah. And so there isn't necessarily a message in any of these, or, or at least the message is up to you to, to draw, um, but it's about, it's about um, feeling the depth of the story as, as the, the commentators are unearthing it. Um, so this piece, piece uh, focuses on Midrash, which is the first great form of rabbinic commentary and just the most incredibly dynamic form of reading or textual interpretation that I have ever encountered. And Midrash, these are the, the, same, the same folks who brought you the Talmud, this was their commentary on the Torah, is Midrash, and Midrash means seeking, okay? So their whole style was like, we're looking for something. We're searching for something. That, that was what they, they termed their form of interpretation was searching. Okay, so that's, that's what we're going to look at tonight. Um, if you have the book, it's on page 38, but I'll, I'll be reading it so you can just look at me. But, um, <laughs> but, um, but, um, but it's called Blind Love, and that's a, that's a, that, that's a reference to a, a Tom Waits song, Blind Love, where he says the only kind of love is stone blind love. So Parshat told us. The great modern Torah commentator Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg in the introduction to her book on Genesis writes about Rashi's fantastic citations from the Midrash that, she says, his commentary works as a dream text suggesting many alternative but not exclusive facets of reality. This week we encounter one of the most fantastic and most beautiful of Rashi's Midrashic citations and it will offer us an alternate dreamlike reading of a classic story. Our setting is the famous scene in which Jacob pretends to be his twin brother, Esau, in order to steal Esau's blessing from his father, Isaac. Commentators for centuries have struggled to untangle the conflicting moral threads of this story because on the one hand, Jacob, aided and abetted by his mother, Rebecca, is the clear villain he lies to his aging father and supplants his apparently innocent older brother, all for personal gain. But on the other hand, Esau is generally understood to be the more savage, less responsible brother—a man unfit to carry, <laughs> a man unfit to carry the Abrahamic—I'm actually the older one, so it doesn't really matter—a um, man unfit to carry the Abrahamic covenant and lead the family. Some traditions even suggest that he was violent, a murderer and a rapist. So maybe it's good that Jacob comes along and deposes his unstable brother before he can wreak havoc and ruin the family name. If that were true, however, why would Isaac be so insistent on blessing Esau to begin with? If Esau is such a known scoundrel, how could Isaac have trusted him to assume the mantle of this sacred family mission? wasn't Isaac wise enough to sense who is good and who is evil? What was he thinking? We may have a small clue into Isaac's state of mind in the language at the very beginning of the chapter. When Isaac was old and his eyes had dimmed from seeing, he called in his older son, Esau. So Isaac is getting old and going blind, And maybe those details are just meant to tell us that Isaac is increasingly enfeebled, perhaps even losing some mental capacity, and so his judgment is not to be entirely trusted. But many of the commentators wonder if this blindness represents something more than just the loss of a physical capacity. Ha'emek Davar puts it this way. His eyes had dimmed, It's not that his aging caused this because he was not at the end of his life, for he lives 60 more years after this. Rather, the cause was from heaven, minashamayim, and many answers are given in the Midrash. He's assuming there is some spiritual significance to this blindness, that the Torah is telling us something more about what is going on with Isaac than just the loss of sight. And he alludes to various possibilities given in the Midrash. Among those possibilities, the most striking one of all, the one I wanted you to see, is recorded by Rashi. gabea when Isaac was bound on the altar and his father wanted to slaughter him, at that moment, the heavens opened up and the angels saw what was happening and began to cry. Their tears came down and fell into Isaac's eyes. And that is why his eyes became dim. Here we have the power of the Midrash in all its fullness. The imagery alone is so rich and so tragic. But meanwhile, as usual, the Midrash is also dealing with a textual problem. The verse told us that about Isaac's blindness, that told us about Isaac's blindness, said that. His eyes had become dimmed from seeing, Now That phrasing is awkward. From seeing what, exactly? Now we have an answer. He saw the angels crying for him. But the real power of this midrash is that it links Isaac's blindness back to the great horror of his childhood, his being bound on the altar by his father, Abraham, to be slaughtered and sacrificed, only to be spared by God at the last moment. This was the defining moment of his life, one that we suspect must have changed him forever. So the image of angels crying into his eyes and somehow scarring them permanently gives us a tangible metaphor for some more profound internal scarring. Whatever happened to Isaac up there on the altar, when he came back, he was never the same. Something in his vision of the world had become fundamentally distorted He would never see things clearly again. Now, this is, thanks to Rashi, a very well-known midrash. And I am not the first to suggest that it can be read on this deeper level as a metaphor for psychological trauma. But still, we might ask, why this particular imagery? Why does he see, of all things, angels crying into his eyes? And furthermore, to return to our story in the Torah, what does all this have to do with the blessings of Esau and Jacob? Why would his experiences on the altar affect which of his sons he wanted to bless? Some surprising answers to those questions might be found in an earlier midrash from the same collection, Bereshit Rabbah. This one appears back in the binding of Isaac's story itself, which we read a couple of weeks ago. It's less well known, but as you'll see, the imagery is remarkably familiar. And Abraham reached out his hand. He reached out his hand to take the knife, and his eyes dripped with tears, and the tears fell into Isaac's eyes. These came from the compassion of a father. But even so, his heart was happy to do the will of his creator. In this rendition, it was Abraham who cried above Isaac, Abraham whose own tears fell into his son's eyes. And these tears that Isaac felt dripping upon him were the tears of fatherly love. Abraham caught up in the throes of a terrifying act of violence, suddenly for just a moment, flashed a face full of compassion for his beloved son. And then just as quickly, As the moment came, it passed, and Abraham recommitted to the task at hand. But when Isaac looked up for that one moment, he thought he had seen an angel appear before him. The man who had become his killer was suddenly his father again, eyes full of love and tears, heart full of pity. He thought he was about to die. He thought his father had abandoned him, that his father had become some kind of monster. But no, look at that. This angelic figure would never harm him. He would be safe. He would be safe. And then suddenly, he was. And then an angel of the eternal called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. And he answered, here I am. And he said, do not reach out your hand against the boy or do anything to him. And Abraham put down the knife, untied his son maybe held him it was over the angels had saved him or was it his father yes that that's it his father his father had wept over him or was was that the angels and now it was all a blur all a bit jumbled up in his memory just as the images are all jumbled up in these midrashim but if we read them together then one thing we didn't get one thing we get that we didn't have before is Abraham's compassion. There was trauma, yes, but in the midst of that trauma, there was also an awareness that that there was something good and loving in Abraham that never left him. Isaac will never forget those tears. They are a reminder that no one can be fully overtaken by violence. A fundamental human compassion always remains. So now, He's told that his own son, Esau, has become a violent man, a bad man. They say he should push him out of the family, bless his younger son instead. Be careful of Esau, they say. He's a killer. But no, not his son, whom he loves. His son who loves him, who dotes on him and brings him the food he likes. He's a good boy. Okay, so he can be a little rough sometimes, And some of the things we've heard about him are unnerving. But he'll be all right. You have to believe he'll be all right. Things always turn out okay in the end. Isaac's eyes welled up with tears. And he called out for his son. So, (laughs) Parsha told out. This is so much fun. I've seen Rabbi Prowse in conversation with so many people. I get to be the, the person she's in conversation with. I love this.
0: I love that you call me a Torah nerd. That is the best thing I've been called you in see, a long see, time. I told, I told you. <laughs> wow. I love the idea of Abraham's compassion. Even in this moment, this like this fit of violence where he's we think he's lost himself. Because what would drive a parent to be able to harm a child like that, and yet his humanity still rests within him? It's it's such a powerful insight.
1: Yeah, I mean, the the, the binding of Isaac um, is sort of the perfect example of 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 how the power of Torah commentary comes in, because it's it's sort of the, it's one of the most famous stories we we have, and it's obviously terrifying in in, in its way. It's, it's clearly meant to be, but it's also very. Um, stark, skeletal. Like, it's, it, there's, there's a sense that that we should be hearing more, knowing more what's going on here. The conversations are just are terse and 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 one or two worded. And it's like, what's this guy thinking? What's his son thinking? What's anyone thinking here? The, the text is sort of begging for that, right? The the term is darshini, right? Like, interpret me. Like, what else is going on here? What what was Abraham thinking? Was he was he psychotic? Was he conflicted? What's going on here? So it's. It's sort of it's the story that, that very naturally produces that the sort of like it, it needs requires begs for commentary.
0: You know, when I started to learn uh, midrash in seminary some years ago, um, I I was I got really hung up when midrashim would contradict one another. So the rabbis would interpret a certain passage one way and then a completely different way, and they did not make sense together. There was they were irreconcilable. These readings often. And now I, I find myself saying something one year that completely contradicts what I said last year about Ishmael mm-hmm. or about Asav. Or, and I wonder if you—this I, I, is this is both a—I um, want—I want to know Adol, but also in the in the micro version of writing the book, how did you identify which of your um, which of your interpretations or pieces of analysis would be the ones that would actually get bound into an actual book? And, and what do you do when you see yourself internally contradicting something that you really firmly believed year before, years before? How do you hold the complexity of, um, of those ideas? Yeah,
1: so I mean, so part of it is like, you know, I, I used the word discourse earlier and th- that's, that's part of the discourse, but it's more than just discourse. It's like, it's theology. It is like, this is the, the rabbis this this group that emerges out of the destruction of the temple, they their message is we can find all of the holiness and all of the fullness of life that we had in this in this building. We can find it in this book, but in order to do that, they had to start suggesting um, that unusual things were were possible with this was a special kind of book now the Torah is already making the claim that it's a special kind of book but the rabbinic philosophy is different and and it's famously expressed in this idea of shivim panim la Torah that there are 70 faces to the Torah and that means that there are 70 ways to interpret any given verse and I think it's it it makes sense that they use a number like 70 it's not infinite like you can't just say anything because it does have to be an actual interpretation of the verse but it is manifold and that means that there are 70 stories that are coursing through the Torah at once like all on top of each other but it isn't really 70 stories because every word can be interpreted in 70 ways so it's 70 intersecting stories so I don't know like my, my Larry my father can do the math here <laughs> but uh but 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 it's like an in, it all it gets almost infinite
0: it's like everything everywhere all at once
1: yeah 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 right, right. <laughs> Um, so, so I think that that's, I'm, like, the idea is to get comfortable with that and to, and to appreciate the beauty of that, of a text that has not just, um, one thing to say, but many things to say, and some of those things contradict each other because, um, there are, there are two things can be true and contradict each other, right? So it's a, it's a theory of reading, but it's a theory of, of truth also. In terms of how I picked stuff... I mean, you know, I sort of just follow the trail down, but I, it got in the book if I, was, if I was shocked or surprised or startled by it. Like if I thought, oh my goodness, you got to see this. Right? Like the first midrash there is the one that I started with, the one of the angels crying into his eyes because it's so stunning. And I've thought about it so many times and, and you know, I've given one version of meaning, but there are 70 others. But then it's like sifting around and you find that same image, right? This is a famous image of the angels crying. Then you find that same image and Abraham's doing the crying and it's like, oh my goodness, like look at what, now that's a contradiction, right? It's two different figures. But what if we read them as two parts of the same story? What if we read them as two aspects of the same uh, field of vision? Or maybe different aspects depending on who's doing the seeing. And, um, and so that's, that's like, that's how I, I picked things. If I found something that just sort of shocked me or blew my mind, that, that went in the book for sure.
0: I love that. Can you talk a little bit about chidush and what it means to see something new in a text that has, that people have been poring over for thousands and thousands of years?
1: Right, right. That's right. Chidush. It's a big, big concept in the world of, of Torah learning. It means like, uh, A a renewing or um, a coming up—literally, it's used like you have a new insight that nobody's thought of before. Which is kind of a there's something kind of heretical about saying that. Oh, you came up with this. None of your sages, your great sages for thought, Maimonides missed this one, but you caught it. (laughs) And yet, that's the idea because um, this this text is supposed to be um, living. And so, if it's living, then it's, um, it's, it's always developing and changing and unfolding. And the way that, that that unfolding, which I called a revelation earlier, the way that that happens is through the kind of chemical reaction um, between us and the text. And we're the text stays the same, but we keep changing. We keep changing in our lives, and we keep changing generation to generation. And of course we see things in the text that nobody's ever seen before, because we are different than anyone has ever been before, and our experience of reality is entirely different than, than the experience of reality of our ancestors. So it's, 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 a, it's, it's, an, it's an exciting thing. To see, to make a connection. Some of it is just the joy of, oh my gosh, I, I think I solved a problem, or I think I, I came up with an interpretation that harmonizes a problem that I, that, I, that I detect in the text that others have pointed out to me before. Um, but it's also, it's, 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 a, it's a part of the process. We're being in, invited to, you know, to renew this text, to, all, to constantly renew this text so that it can continue to live. It lives through us.
0: So, so can you tell us what your favorite chidush is? I mean, as you've been looking back over the book and, and there's so many, I mean, I'm, I'm astonished by what you've done here. And in every single Parsha, there's something that just takes my breath away because you, you put something together in a way that I've never thought of it before. Is there one, is there one special insight that you might wanna share? I mean, aside from Parsha Toldot, that, that you feel just really proud of?
1: There, there is one. That's a good question. I didn't. I didn't plant that question, but there is one that I feel especially proud of. So um, le, let me let me give you an example of what, what a chidush is, what it means. To I'll give you someone else's, and I'll and I'll give you my my, my attempt. Um, the, the idea that you could spot something nobody's ever said before. There's a there's a famous article by um, Rav Yol Ben Nun. Uh, was a, a great um, uh, Torah teacher in Israel um, that asks the question. Um, uh, why did Joseph not contact his father all those years? His brother sold him into slavery, but like his father just ached over him. His father, um, his father uh, didn't know where he was, so why didn't he, he becomes second in command of all e- Egypt. He can't send a ma- message back and say, hey, dad, I'm alive. And um Yol Ben-Nun points out that the, his father was the last person to see him before he went to his brothers, who immediately threw him into a pit. And his father said to him, go and see how your brothers are doing. And so he must have thought that his father was in on it. That's a chidush, right? That sounds like, whoa, good one. Good one. So that's sort of been big chidush. And you dream of, of, of seeing something like that in the Torah. That's like, that's, that's, what, that's what you, you, you uh, that's a chidush. And I I I have one uh, I think it's in here that I'm I'm certainly um uh I, I always think about cuz when I thought of it it did feel it felt like oh my gosh like I I suddenly understand um what's going on here so um it's uh let's see did I write about it no I didn't write about it um <laughs> so my one of my favorite chidushim is um is in parshad vayigash which means and he approached and it's uh it's Vayigash is, is the, the, the big dramatic culmination of all of the, the, this same story, all the back and forth manipulations and, and deceit and negotiations between Joseph and his brothers who come to visit him in Egypt but don't recognize him. And so now he gets back at them by sending them back and forth and taking them captive and then and, and lying to them. And uh, in the end, he asks them to bring down um, their, uh, their, their youngest brother, Benjamin, And they bring Benjamin down, much to uh, their father Jacob's uh, great distress because he's already lost one son, and this is kind of a replay, which is exactly what Joseph intends it to be. And Joseph says, okay, great, I'm keeping Benjamin. You can all go home because, after all, Benjamin is Joseph's closest brother. They they were both Rachel's children. And so um, that's it, and he sends them all back home. Disaster, exactly what Jacob feared. Um, And Judah, who's pledged to to be responsible, whatever should happen, he, he will be responsible. Um, Judah steps up and he approached Vayigash and he steps up and he says, and he delivers this speech and it's kind of perfect. And he says, my master, you know, our father is very old and he has already lost a son to his great sorrow. And um, now if, 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 if this happens, it'll, it will, it'll kill him. And I tell you what, take me instead. Take me instead. Now, Judah's the person who had come up with the idea to sell Joseph into slavery. So part of it is that Judah is undoing what he's already done. He's making a kind of tshuva for his earlier behavior. But he also picks, it's like, it's the perfect speech. He picks exactly the right words to wind their way into Joseph's heart. He tells him, and if Yoel bin Nun was right, he reveals to him that his father never knew. That his father's been missing him all of these years, and that if he does this, if he keeps Benjamin, then he will do to his father what had been done to him all of these years ago, all over again. He'll repeat the trauma. So it's, a, it's like it's a, it's, a, it's a perfectly executed speech. So the question is like, how did Judah know exactly what to say? And I don't think anyone has ever said that the parsha begins with the word vayigash that he approached. That he went, He took a step forward, and maybe, I think, he suddenly recognized, oh my gosh, that's Joseph. That's Joseph. And in, in an instant, he realized, I, I don't know what's going on here, but that's my brother Joseph. And so he said the things that Joseph had to hear. And I, that I don't know if that's as good as Reveal Nunes, but I felt like, and he approached, and by the way, um, in this story that I read tonight, um, when... Um, Isaac says to um, Jacob wait who are you really I can't because remember he's going blind he says Gishuna, like come close come closer so I so I can so I can see like that that language is a language that's already been established as one that could bring sudden recognition so that's that's my chiddish <laughs> that's my chiddish and I, I'm, I'm proud of it <laughs>
0: uh, that's fantastic <laughs> Clap for my (laughs) kiddush.
1: This is really like this is this is like the I just to be able to be in a room. This is like Dork City, right? Like we're all just saying, yeah, the Torah, this random interpretation of a Hebrew word. So exciting! I I, I love you all. I'm so (laughs) so grateful for you all. So grateful to have people that will listen to me talk about this because I do love it.
0: Um, I, you know, I wonder. I, I think sometimes people are surprised to hear that the living Judaism today really is an interpretive tradition. It's a rabbinic tradition that we don't. I mean, there are fundamentalist rabbinic Jews, but but everything that we read is through the lens of the rabbis now. And and so, I wonder if you think that you could lay out for us what the boundaries are of legitimate. Interpretation, meaning if you cast the entire tradition as an interpretive tradition, then we're putting a lot of responsibility on the interpreters, and people are flawed beings, mm-hmm. and and so what makes something a legitimate commentary on our sacred text, and something an illegitimate commentary on the same text?
1: That is a that is a great question. That is a great question, and. Um, you know, I mean, I don't know how to answer it. I mean, there's a part of me that, that, that is tempted to say, like, you know, any interpretation is good interpretation. But I already said I don't really believe that. I mean, I, I have some vague um, way of saying that, well, it has to be grounded in the text. Like, you can't just say what you want. You have to say something that is an actual, an attempt to read the text. Now, none of us can, can, do, can, can read objectively. We're reading from a subjective Uh, always a perspective but you know there's some notion that well you know you can't just say anything you want like we decide the tradition decides the community decides whether this is um, a good an interpretation that sticks and maybe this book you know uh, not my book but this book Mikrootkodolot is like a collection of the ones that that stuck you know a lot of people said things that just yeah moving on like some of it is just what um, what gets recorded, what gets remembered and, and, and what lasts. Um, but I mean, there is also um, there is also, I must say that I'm participating, I think, in a particular discourse or particular mode, even within that 70, there's a mode of reading that I am sort of committed to, which is to see the Torah as a unified whole, right To see this book, in kind of conversation with itself, that, uh, that like the five books of Moses are one book, and um, you can spot patterns in this book, and you can, um, you can see this book you know, setting up themes and then delivering on them, and that, the, that it's a unitary whole. And of course, that way of reading um, is um, often founded on the idea that this is, this is a revelation, this is God's perfect text, God wrote the Torah. Um, and that ends up being one of the like the big d- debates in, in 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 biblical commentary and interpretation, and and you know it, it's easy to f- to end up falling on one side of the debate, and therefore um, and therefore um, uh, ceasing to be in dialogue with other uh, forms of interpretation. But I actually don't think that that mode requires a particular understanding of the revelation and who wrote the text. I think it's like, it's a, it's a, what, God wrote this book, whether God wrote it on Mount Sinai and delivered it to Moses, or whether God wrote it through centuries of people composing it together. And whatever form that we have is, to me, clearly a revelation. And that revelation is something that I have come to believe in by reading the text. By, by, and I think that this mode of reading, let's read this whole thing as if it were perfect, and as if it were a whole, and then let's see what comes out of that reading. And I have found it to be um, a, a, a wondrous thing, you know? So so I must say that I I always, and in my classes, some of you know, I'm like, I'm always happy to in, incorporate all modes of interpretation. I Part of what I like about Torah study is that it's kind of a free-for-all. Like, I don't know, you just show up, what do you think it's saying, you know? And there are better and worse interpretations, but I must admit that I am driven by a kind of holistic vision of the Torah. Mm.
0: You, you mentioned earlier the jats and tittles, and so this is a reference to, uh, to the, in the Talmud, in Manachot, in one of the um, tractates, it, 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 I think that it's hearkening back to the delay on the mountain when Moshe goes up the mountain to receive the revelation and God's taking a really long time and Moshe looks and God is placing these beautiful little crowns above some of the letters mm. and Moshe says, what are you doing? And God says, one day there's going to be a student of Torah that's going to be able to find meaning in every single jot and every tittle, mm. which is not the way that it's actually phrased in the, uh, in the original, <laughs> but, but that's how we translate it. And so, and so there's meaning everywhere, meaning it, that some of this is, this whole practice is about teaching us, I think, to not take anything for granted, but to find, to look at the world actively, not passively, and to search for meaning constantly. And I just wonder if you can reflect a little bit about how learning Torah has changed you as a human being. Yeah.
1: Um, I want. I want. I want to. I want to answer that by starting with the with the first um, the first uh, descri- uh, descriptions you were giving us. This idea that every little letter and every little um, word, um, and every not just every every crown on the letter can be interpreted. And I I remember so clearly the day that I fell in love with Parshanut, and it was the first day that I was being taught. Um, Rashi, Rashi, and you know I didn't I didn't grow up with this stuff, so I was in my early twenties, but um, but we were just studying the 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 commentary of Rashi on the first chapter of the Torah, and it says um, it says and there was evening and there was morning day one and evening and morning a second day a third day a fourth day a uh, a fifth day and then it says Vayer Vayvoker Yom Hashishi the sixth day. So it says a uh, 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 second, a third, a fourth, a fifth, the sixth. So that's a, an example of like pattern spotting. right? There's a, there's a pattern, and the pattern has been broken. So why the sixth? And the commentary, uh, Rashi's commentary says the sixth is a reference to the sixth of Sivan, the day that the Torah was given. Mm. The sixth of Sivan, the day the Torah was given. Um, uh, and, and like the way we would say like the fourth so the sixth is like the day the Torah was given that's the the sixth of the month and um and you know uh because this uh, everything Rashi says was um tluin everything was hanging in suspension waiting for this moment for this day and that's why um the sixth day is like a little bit of a wink like it says the sixth day because all of this, everything that's happened, all of the very creation itself is all standing and waiting for this great day, that this book will come into the world. But it's the book that is telling you that. It's like the book saying, like, here's a by in, through this interpretation, like here's a here's a little wink. I am the most important thing. What you are reading right now, I am the point of everything. <laughs> now I don't know if that is something that I sign on to, but I think it's it's the most incredible. I, my head started spinning. Like, wait, can, are we allowed to read this way? Is this, is this like, is this a legitimate form of interpretation? But it's like, it, the, the, it, there's that wonder. Like, it's that, it's that, it's that rev- revelatory wonder that gets stirred up by these like wild things that are nevertheless the wild things that get said. Nevertheless, based deeply on little, little, little quirks and patterns that are spotted in the text. All, all of that is just to say that the the the, the, kot, kotzim, the jots and tittles are. Um, are titillating, um, and have always titillated me, but, um, but I think that, um, that um, the re- the, to, I'll answer your other, your deeper question in a simpler way, which is that the, the thing that we get from reading this carefully is that we become more careful readers of our world. You know that we learn to read, noticing the uh, the difference between an uh and a "the," and saying that matters. What might it mean? And then it's like, you know, I think it's I think it's um, you know, it's 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 no uh, coincidence um, that um, that 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 our people have. Um, you know, it's like an, a time of anti-Semitism and we get sometimes attacked for some of our excellence, you know, like there's black excellence and there's Jewish excellence. There's, and some of our excellence, we, we have really achieved in, 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 you know, in some some of the the, 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 the fields that we are accused of, of controlling. We don't control, but we have achieved in them. And I think the part of that is because this culture and this mode of reading has made us very keen readers of legal texts and contracts and scripts and, you know, we're good readers. We're we're good readers of of our world and uh, and i think the torah has helped us become good mm-hmm. readers of our world
0: beautiful okay i'm going to ask one last question and then i would love to open it up for just a couple of minutes um and then we're gonna we're gonna make a toast and uh and say l'chaim um and then rabbi kasher will be happy to um time is fleeting
1: yeah she she, she, she could say her all night should we keep going saying- <laughs> all right let's keep going <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yes. Okay. Well, I the, I want to ask you a personal question. Sure. Um, I I mean we just talked about how learning Torah has changed you. Hmm. And I resonate so much to that and I think I think that learning Torah has made me a better a better mother as I try to look at my, what my kids are saying and try to understand what's in between the words. It's made me definitely a better wife. It's made me a better American. Like, my relationship with the Constitution is a healthier relationship because of my relationship with Torah. Yeah. And and so, but I want to ask you, how, so that's how Torah changes us. But now, so you're a teacher of Torah. You learned in Yeshiva for many years, and then you became this master teacher. And then you came to become a pulpit rabbi for a few years. And we've been the lucky, uh, the lucky ones who got to be the recipients of your Torah for, for those, you know, for those years. And so learning Torah, because it's intoxicating and fascinating and titillating is one thing. Learning Torah to teach Torah is, is, you know, is something, but learning Torah to preach is totally different. And so, and especially during the times that you, you know, you started here, right in the, you know, in the midst of the Trump administration, and the U.S. is on fire, and then we go into COVID, and then, you know, through this, through this incredibly difficult time. And at the same time as everything's happening globally and nationally, you're kind of falling in love with the community and the community's falling in love with you. How has that changed your Torah? Mm. So first we know how Torah has, is changing you, but how has, how has community changed your Torah?
1: Mm. Hmm. Well, first of all, I mean, you've changed my Torah a great deal. And, you know, it's, I, I, it's such a pleasure to be able to do this with you because I, I think you're, you're one of the great Torah commentators of, of our age. This you're, is not what
0: I was asking. No, no, <laughs> but listen.
1: Listen, your reading of, 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 of Exodus in particular is distinct and important and new. It's old and it's new. Um, the idea that, that that this is that, that, that Exodus is a, is a political document that has like a, a, a moral and political message for us. you said that in a way that is that is new and has shifted my appreciation of Exodus, but also of what it means to teach Torah in a way that is um, that that is that animates towards action. You know, like the rabbis say, and they. I said the Midrash was their form of interpretation. Midrash is what they called a seeking midrash the learning, the seeking. that was what they were all about. but the rabbis famously say, in Pirkeavot, loa midrash, ha'ikar. the midrash is not the ikar, the essence El the action is the essence, and I feel like you 've taught me that, and so uh, and, and you have all taught me that that there 's a, there's a connection between our learning and what we do in the world, and so I'm, you know, I'm never going to be the activist that you are. I'm like more of a bookish lad, but um but or but I but I do feel like I try to teach with that awareness now in my mind that this matters and it 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 can be the thing that's that sparks people to change their lives in both um the big ways, like of moving the forces of the world, and also in the smaller ways of like, maybe they will fall in love with certain mitzvot, mm-hmm. and maybe they will, um, they will find a relationship to God. And th- being teaching in a community, uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a rabbi in that community, means doing midrash for maseh, doing learning f- with, with an eye towards action. And that's new for me, and I think it's it's totally transformed my teaching. Um, And I'm I'll always be grateful for that for that for the imprint that Ecar has had on me in that way. Beautiful.
0: All right. Hmm. Um, Well, I'm going to take a couple questions if folks want to engage Rabbi Kasher. Yes, and Gary, please introduce yourself as you get ready to speak.
1: Hey, Gary. legitimate interpretation and you folks said it's the community or the kihila but listening to you tonight I don't think that that's the answer I think the answer is is that there is an excellence in the interpretation from people who are scholars of this which you two are proving to be and then you deliver it out to us and I think you deliver it out with a with trying to reach a level of excellence, and I think Rabbi Kasher, in your book, what you're doing and interpreting is with a sense of creativity and an excellence in the creativity of how do you look at this? How do you pull out the chidush? How do you how do you use a creative process in this? Um, comment on that. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right, and maybe I didn't, I, you know, maybe I didn't lean on that enough. Like, it has to be legitimate. it has to stick, and part of, part of the, the way that something sticks is that it's rigorous, and that it's like, I think any, any, any of us who, who head off to rabbinical school and, and start cracking open the books in the bait me dress, start to feel like, you know, humbled to insignificance. You see some of the, the mental, um, acrobatics of our sages, and, it just it's it's like oh I'm never like I'm never going to be able to 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 reach that level and I never will. But it inspires you to that kind of rigor. There's a certain kind of rigor to good interpretation where you say, I am interpreting the, the, the word this way because I've seen it three other times before, and let me show you where where it is in the text. You don't you know it's not just a feeling that you have that you bring to the text, though that's a part of it as well. There's a kind of a, a mastery, and I am. You know, just like a little ways down down the road, in in an attempt to to have some kind of mastery over this text, and I do think that that's a part of it, and I do think that um, this is. I wanna I want people to fall in love with this book, but it's also there's something in this tradition that's like that that like makes me want to push a little bit, like learn some Hebrew, even if you just learn the 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 alphabet that will ha- the, the that will help you in just recognizing when words look similar right? Read these stories again and again, and you'll start to see how they seep into you. But you'll also begin to master them because you're reading them again and again and again and again. And that's, uh, that's a, one of the, you know, I, I, I sometimes say that um, there's two ways to become well-read. You can read all the books, or you can just read one book over and over and over and over again. And um, I, don't, I, I, was, I, I don't think I could read all the books, so I decided on the second path. Yeah. Mm. Okay, Anyways. any other
0: questions?
2: Hey, everybody. Right. So, and just, if any
0: folks online have a question, also feel free to put it in the chat and maybe someone can hand it to me.
2: Um, spe- speaking as the speaking as the dad of a bat mitzvah at Carr, who studied with you and whose feet you held to the fire so that she could come up with her own chidush. Thank you. And she did, yeah. And she did. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm really curious how you respond to some of the tendencies of the commentator's Toward particular philosophies, mm. ideologies. Um, what I really appreciated about your book, and I admit I've made it through Genesis. I haven't gone further, but
1: listen, you're um, you're out of schedule. Yeah. We're still in Genesis. <laughs>
2: um, is is just how how much pleasure you so visibly take in exploring these new, in, in exploring every commentator who comes up. There's just a joy in your text that I love. But I can't help but to wonder, what happens when you run into somebody who is trying to get somewhere that you profoundly disagree with for yeah. moral reasons, philosophical reasons, and others?
1: Yeah, that, that, that happens all the time. And um, and it's a, init, I, it's a great question, because initially, I found it disappointing. Rashi is the master. And sometimes Rashi says things that, and after all, he's quoting our sages, um, that feel um, uh, off to me. Um, uh morally uh and you know and this happens uh, again and again you find a favorite commentator and then you know you know it's like it's, and he and and he says a beautiful thing and then it's like you know cuz Jews are better than anyone else you know like it's it's just like that's the way they if it, then he the, that he finishes the thought and it's kind of like ah oh, man um yeah. but you know first of all I don't I don't like in terms of just the the bigger question of what do you do with the fact that Judaism is like a a, you know patriarchal like I I don't hold the rabbis uh, of that era to the standards of our era because like you know I have been fortunate to live in the age of feminism like Rashi was that was not his age and so the whole world was not there yet and I I'm not I'm not troubled by by that and so it is that you know, with other some of these other things, Jewish particularism, and they, it always has to be understood in the in the in, in the shadow of a history of of constant persecution. Like no wonder um, sometimes Jews looked out and thought they were seeing barbarians, you know. But it is hard to to read, and you don't have that same kind of delight and inspiration. And you know, I think the answer is like there's someone else on the page. I mean, move on. Like, go look for something else because this is not the commentator who's giving you your Torah that day. You have to, I mean, it, 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 you don't stick to any one commentator. Like, the beauty of this book, this is like the book that I fell in love with, is that the Torah's up here and all of these commentaries are just people throughout the centuries. Like, I've got something to say and someone else says, no, I totally disagree with that and they say so on the page. So if they can disagree with each other on the page, sir, surely I hundreds of years later with all kinds of new information can disagree with their scientific propositions or sometimes their moral propositions.
0: Yeah, and I'll just I'll just take it one step further which is those are the vo- those are the voices that made it onto the page. There's not a single woman whose voice is going to be in that page. There's nobody who's out LGBTQ whose name is going to be on that page. I mean there's so many people who who's maybe had ideas but those voices weren't recorded and so I think part of it is navigating your way around the voices that exist and then also and then also feeling some kind of moral obligation to add your voice because it's not there. And so like actively disagreeing, which I think is one thing we do well with our kids. And, you know, that's part of helping them come up with their own, their own chidush. is like helping them engage in conversation with what came before. And then also understand that they might, they might actually see something that nobody saw before because nobody else was a, you know, a kid growing up in LA in 2022 with their, with the, with all of the influences and, um, and impacts all around them, so.
1: Right, and it, and it only means there's more Torah, like there's more Torah to be unearthed, right? Like there, are, what, what is the feminist reading? I mean, this now we've been doing for, for much of the last century. Like what is the queer reading of the Torah? What is the, the technologically, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the way that we've been affected by, by our world in all kinds of ways? How does that shape the way that we, that we read the Torah? How does, it, how does our technology, since I mentioned it, shape the way that we relate to Shabbat? It's like different now. Shabbat means something different to us. We're getting away from different things, so there's always more insight. There's always more Torah. There's always more revelation.
0: So Florine Rosen, um, hi Florine, is with us online. And Florine asked how your poetic side enters into your into the process of writing, because there there's absolutely an art here in these pages. So can you talk about how art and poetry um, play a role in for sure, writing?
1: For sure. For sure. There there is. I don't know. If, I don't know how. That's not, uh, Florine is, is a poet, but my, my poetic side perhaps comes out. Um, but, uh, but there's a tradition that the whole of the Torah is a poem. Um, there's like, uh, the, the Torah is, is uh, it, towards the end of the Torah, it says, uh, that, write down at Hazot, this poem. And it seems like there's another, there, a, a chapter later, a poem comes. It seems like it must be talking about that. But the rabbis say, no, 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 no. the whole Torah is a poem. And that's Florine's exactly right that that, kind of reading. The way you read a a poem is exactly what we've been talking about, just like what does this word mean? How does it feel? How does it look? Right? And um, the styles of interpretation are often um, classic poetic modes of reading, right? Like, look, what's the key word here that we're seeing spread the, the, what did Buber call Leitwort, right? That's like moving throughout this text. That's a poetic reading. So indeed, like the um, the rabbis were saying something profound when they said that the, the whole Torah is like a poem.
0: Mm. I, it makes me think of Rabbi uh, Panitz, who said when we were all preparing furiously for High Holy Days this year, and he said to me, you know, on a good day, I can write five words of this sermon. Mm-hmm. And like, he's really crafting a piece of art. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it really flows. And sometimes it's five really beautiful words that come together exactly the right way. So, yes.
1: I'm wondering how the, uh, how the weekly Parsha cycle has affected the way that you, uh, look at the, uh, look at commentaries that if you were to just choose, you know, your 54 favorite commentaries, they probably wouldn't neatly fall into one per Parsha. Um, and right. Most examples you gave today came from the book of Genesis, but sort of like was there anything that you sort of felt like, oh, there's two really good ones, but I have to choose one, or some, Holy. or some part of the Torah where you like felt like, you've got to like pay attention to something that you would otherwise ignore, like what, uh, you know, any, any sort, anything along those totally. lines? Totally. I mean, look, I, after doing it for five years, so I had five pieces on every parsha, and this has one for every parsha. Which, you know, first of all, just like it would have been too big a book, but um, but also. Yeah, I mean, there were it five years gave me the feeling that like there was at least one that was good out of the five that I really felt like I was excited about and proud about. And and both the material I was writing about and the and more the the work that I had done. And there were other uh there were other years where I had an abundance because there's just there's just so much there. But that's just that's my own process. You were asking more about whether it feels like there is always an abundance in some some places, and it's a, a little more arid in other parts of the Torah. And yes, I, I think like is that is that an accurate? Maybe not. Good enough. Okay. Fair I think enough. it's
0: like what do you do with like Tazria mitzahra?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, so I was going to say. I mean, Genesis is. Um, ever fruitful, right? Ever multiplying, and uh, Leviticus is tough. Leviticus is tough, but um, but and and it's harder to find something. To, Rabbi Sadok and I always joke about parshat Tzav. Parsha Tzav ugh, you know, you know, you know Parshat Tzav. This is a person who's had to cycle through the Torah for years and every year you get to Parshat Tzav. Parshat Tzav is the second Parsha of Leviticus and Leviticus itself is kind of like, whoa, we're talking about animal sacrifice and that's it now and now we're going to talk about bodily purity also and just like all, like whoa, what? this is a whole book of the Torah and um, and Leviticus like details, um, I mean, sorry, the opening, Vayikra, the first Parsha details all, all of the sacrifices and then Sav um, just tells the priests about the same sacrifices, how they're to be prepared. I mean, it's like there's nothing to say. It's like there's nothing. Like it's like some of the most difficult reading. But I will just say that um, the two greatest works of midrash in the ancient world were the midrash on Genesis and the midrash on Leviticus, and that is because Genesis just gives itself as like it's 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 you know it's just gold, but Leviticus because it's there. And it's been presented to us, of like, this too is part of the holy revelation. you got to make some meaning of it. The rabbis took that as a challenge, and they said, okay, next we're turning to Leviticus, and we're going to see what we can do with Leviticus. And Vayikra Rabbah, Leviticus Rabbah, is, is one of the golden vessels. Like, it is just a beautiful masterpiece of of Torah commentary, and that's sort of like, I take that as my charge, like when you get to Leviticus, you got to find something to say, you got to like search deeper, you have to pick through the letters um, more, more finely to get to that, to that Torah, but, uh, but yeah, I know, I know the experience that you're, uh, that you're suggesting for sure.
0: Uh, one of the questions I was going to ask you is about what your, process, uh, what your process is when you sit down to write a Devar Torah or to, come, to prepare for a Torah class. But you sort of addressed it. Uh, you said you start by asking a question, and then you just go deeper and deeper and deeper into answering that question by looking at all of the commentators and, and then eventually finding your analysis. And I, I, I want to just say that I, one of the things that I do— because I do the same, and my intention is always to read the full Parsha first, and then to start to go deep, but I never get past the first line before I start going deep, because if you're paying attention, you know, you can't, and then I just start pulling books off the shelf, and I actually, I really believe that this book will be one of the books that we pull off the shelf when we're trying to make sense um, of this incredibly rich, incredibly mysterious, and incredibly sacred text, and I'm so grateful for this. This is an, such a beautiful gift for all of us. Um, you know, I, I've thought I've thought so much over the years about how it is that the Jews have stayed alive um, when empires have fallen, and and it's so clear that our relationship with Torah is part of this. That there's something about the the vitality that comes from being involved in a in a relationship with a text that is an, a constant source of spiritual and intellectual heat, right? You're just, you're constantly being surprised and moved and challenged. And, um, and it's so, it's been so wonderful to watch you as a teacher to sort of share that vitality with all of us. And as I said, when we started now with, with a much, much bigger audience than you've ever been able to before and it's just an incredible blessing. So right. I wanted to say congratulations Mozelov Shakov.
2: Thank you and thank you
0: And what we're gonna do we can, we
1: can thanks everybody thanks appreciate you
2: appreciate you.
0: So um, we're gonna. We have some, I think we have some champagne back there, and right. we, I would love uh, for people to stick around and buy books, and for Rabbi Kasher to sign books, and let's make some toasts. But I want to just do uh, one thing, if I can, the the um, rabbinic prerogative, which is, I'm gonna ask us to just offer before we even get our hands on the champagne, um, and I'm, there, I'm assuming that there's also Martinellis back there. Mm-hmm. Um, I want We're gonna have. I'm just gonna ask for three people to say something about one particular piece of Torah that you learned from Rabbi Kasher, either from his book or from, from just listening to him. So I just want to ask you that we can take a moment and think about, you know, sitting in Shalhevet basketball court on Shabbos or on High Holy Days and just hearing something that takes your breath away and just lives inside of you from that point forward. And there are so many of them. I have so many of them. But I'm going to start by just offering one, which is the way that you described on Kol Nidre this past year, experiencing the presence of God while driving down the the turnpike or the freeway or one... The FDR. The FDR was one of the most beautiful and vivid and inviting images that I've ever heard anyone use to describe the experience of God's presence and at Icar, we have such a beautiful diversity in our community, and we're always aware that there are people of faith, and there are atheists, and the way that we talk has to be a way that's inviting for everybody. And somehow you spoke about God in that moment in such, with such a profound honesty and open-heartedness that I felt like we were on that road with you in that car with your worry for your father and your your heart just wide open and I felt also the presence of God in that moment. I felt like you shared it with me and with all of us. And that was an incredible gift. So I, I thank you for that Torah, Rabbi Kasher. And I want to invite, if there are a couple of other people who can have one, I'm talking one tiny moment from a sermon or from a shiur on Monday at lunch or Thursday at lunch or a house party one image or one word that has or from the book that has touched you and then we'll say thank you Rabbi Kasher. Yes, Janet.
1: Economy of characters. That's last that's last week's uh passionate. Yeah totally. <laughs> can
0: you can you say what, what Janet The means
1: Economy by- of Characters is the name of the of last week's uh, that I titled last week. The economy of characters is a debate that I um, that I had um, with a very good friend of mine, uh, around what he called the economy of characters principle, um, uh, and he by, by that he means that the, when there are um, the, uh, one, when there are the, there are two characters in the Torah that seem to have entirely different stories, sometimes have entirely different names, the rabbis will fold them into one. So it's like being economizing how many characters there are. And my friend. Uh, hates this because he says it just like flattens. So there's different stories, but I kind of love it because it's like suddenly these two separate stories are interwoven. And there's two versions of it. There's the version where an unnamed character is uh, is, uh, is 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 like called by the name of an earlier. Oh, this was that person. But there there's also the version where there's a two characters with two different names, Hagar and Keturah, right. and the rabbis just say same person. They just had two names, and now you have to read these stories together. So it's a yeah, it's a, it's a debate back and forth. I'm glad you liked it, Janet. Yeah.
0: Okay, one more or two more? Yes. Uh, Michelle, who is, by the way, our incoming board chair, and here with her mother, Joanne. Um, So Michelle um, is referring to Rabbi Kasher's incredible sermon from the Shabbos right after the Roe, the, the, the Dobbs decision was leaked, the decision that would overturn Roe. And you had this great line that you kept saying, and I was on sabbatical, so I wasn't supposed to be paying attention, but I was. But you kept saying, who should I listen to? The Mishnah?
1: Or Matt Sands. Or
0: Matt Sands from the Louisiana legislature. Who should I listen to? And uh, it was an incredible sermon, which if you haven't heard, you should. But also, it made me think that also about how far you came as a preacher in the course of your couple of years here. Because you were, I mean, it was, the the Torah was so profound and so and he, it, the And the connection was just, it was just such a powerful, beautiful, obvious connection. And all of a sudden, you were... You were doing, this is a whole different art. It was a whole different art, and now you have that too. Um, and it made Michelle feel hopeful. So thank you. And the last one Michelle. will come from Joe. Hey, Joe. The
1: one on gun
0: violence, hmm. the one on gun violence hmm. uh, and the shamefulness of, of carrying weapons. Yeah.
1: yeah. Let me just say in response to those, those, um, those examples that part of what I want you to see in our tradition, in our Torah, and our, our tradition of commentary, is that you will be surprised by how radical, how um, how uh, sometimes revolutionary, our 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 core texts and our, our ancient sages were. Sometimes seeing things entirely different than we see them today, but sometimes seeing forward of where we are today and. Um, you know, this is this is you know. They, they, they these rabbis empowered themselves to say dangerous things, and um, and they were willing to say bold and dangerous things. And uh, and so, study your Torah. There's uh, there's <laughs> fire in there. You know, there's fire in there.
0: Well, we um, we often. We often end our services, um, I say at the end of the bracha, Sufit often, we're saying to God, in your light, we also, we say, we're bathed in light. We're bathed in light. And and so I just, I want to bless you. Um, I want to bless you. You have this beautiful light of Torah in you, and it feels like we all, um, we're all we all benefiting from it. It has enriched uh, my life and, and our lives um, endlessly. And I just hope you continue to shine and to radiate this beautiful light um, for so many years to come. And I don't know, I mean, I'm an organizer too at heart, and so I feel like I can't let you leave until you promise me that the next book that comes out, the sequel, um, will also get to launch here at Icarus. It just feels Great, right. Man. It feels like <laughs> what began here should, you know, continue Thank here. You. Thank so, you for yeah.
1: bringing me here. Thank you for, for everything you've taught me.
0: Mazel tov, mazel, tov, mazel tov.
1: Thanks, everybody. I appreciate you. I really appreciate it.